The last week we discussed the question, the idea, if you like, of, uh, of knowledge or inner knowledge that, that we call Das, which is the idea of that kind of knowledge, the, the tool or the base of a wisdom which is much deeper than than technical or factual knowledge. Who is not here last week? I'd like to continue that discussion. Let's just revise very briefly at least the area, although we can't go into the full discussion again. Let's just put ourselves back in context. That shared a couple of new angles on that subject and see if we can trace it further or deeper, if you like. And there's very difficult subjects to speak about as we tried to understand last week that this area, by definition, is that which has no words. It is explicitly, it's expressly that area where the knowledge is wordless, it's beyond words. Once a thing can be put into words, then by definition it is part of the exterior exterior knowledge it is part of that which is technically knowable if it can be put into words then it can there's a lot in common with that which a machine or even possibly an animal can understand not words as such by animals but if it's if it's in the world of those things that can be measured and registered and then dealt with so mechanical systems can do that too the dice lives in a world where there are no words by definition where things are known because they are as they are, known intrinsically as they are, not because of any <laughs> extrinsic reason, ex- external reason. Things that you know with the dice, you know simply because you know them, you know them in exactly the same way as you exist. You don't know that you exist because you measure it in any way. You know that you exist because that's your primary knowledge. It doesn't need justification. In fact, it can't really be justified or proved. That's the area of knowledge that we call... <coughs> We call the dice. It's by far the most important subject that there is, because if you don't have an avenue of access to, to real knowledge, if all you ever get to know is the things that you can know in the same way that a machine or a calculator or a computer can know them, then you is a long way off from discussing any Jewish ideas. In fact, that position is a long way before being human, because if it's a mechanical, if mechanical systems can assimilate those sorts of facts and make computations or calculations or conclusions from facts then if you're doing the same thing that is holding a long way before being human let alone Jewish and spiritual and therefore if there's no access to this mode that we call Das there's really no, there's really no discussion at all there's no investigating any, any, any deeper pathway and therefore it's by far the most important subject it's the most difficult it's also the most obvious and basic but it's also the most difficult and it is the most important. That kind of inner knowledge, the Gemara says, I think we, we mentioned last week, the Gemara says that uh, if you have that, you have everything. The Gemara says, somebody who has that has everything. The Lord the person who doesn't have that, what does he have? Has nothing. The Gemara says, if you've acquired that kind of knowledge, you, you lack nothing. What, have you, what do you lack? If you lack that, you've acquired nothing. We didn't mention this last week, but there's another, there's another place in the Gemara which is almost, almost incredible in its sharpness, that it says, Misha en bodea, 
asula rachem alav. That's almost. <coughs> that's a statement so extreme. It's almost one one hesitates even to translate it. What it means literally is that somebody who doesn't have dice is forbidden to have mercy on such a person. I mean, there's a much deeper meaning as well, but at its simple level, it means to have rachamim. That means to show the kindliness that normally we, we would show to, to a human being. If somebody doesn't have dice, you may not do that. Why is that? Why is that? It's a required full discussion in its own right, but just an analogy would be that one is, forbid, one is forbidden to give something to someone who could only use it to harm himself. Like if, you, if, if, if somebody who was addicted to something very harmful, let's say, asked you for, for that substance, or asked you for money, and you knew that they were going to go and buy whatever it was and harm themselves, they would be forbidden to give them that because it's only going to lead to a to destruction or damage. And somebody who doesn't have dice, so then whatever's put in will be a much worse than a distortion. I mean, it's a really extreme statement, but those are the nature of the, that's the nature of the statements that the Gemara, the Zohar, deeper sources, they talk about this faculty of knowledge. Last week we tried to look at it as carefully as we could, and uh, we can't really re- revise that discussion entirely. Let's just pick up the thread of perhaps one of the central elements of that discussion. Let me remind you that we said that the feature, the central characteristic of the Das, or perhaps the best way to approach it, is by, is by showing it in contrast with that which it's not. Right? And I, as I try to explain, Rob Dessler says that there are two modes to our faculty of knowledge. We know things in two separate ways. We know things externally with what we call, what he calls the external eye, EYE, Mabata Chitsaini, the external vision or eye, and there's the internal vision, Mabata Pnimi, that vision which is internal. And since we can very well characterize the external wisdom, then we can begin to get some light shone upon what is the internal wisdom, almost by default or by, by exclusion, if you like. And the external eye <coughs> knows or sees, grasps all those things that can be put into words, that can be proved, that can be demonstrated. You can write them down, you can share them with someone else, you can analyze them mechanically, you can put them into a computer system for for example, those are all of the things that are known by the outer wisdom and the faculty, the way that we would understand it in our own experience is that it's all the things that you can grasp or read or measure with your senses and that you can deal with with your logical faculty. So if you can measure something and you can take it in right, through your faculties, you can measure it, you can feel it, taste it, see it, etc. And then you can make computations or calculations with that wisdom, what we call the faculty of Bina. You can actually extract more knowledge from within the parts by making calculations, that is exactly what a calculator does. There's nothing human about doing that at all. A calculator <laughs> is also a system that, that obtains measurements or input symbols or facts from the outside world, sort of computer does, and then it manipulates them and, and calculates and, and has an output. It's very useful. No one's complaining, of course. It's very useful and you need that. In fact, the deeper sources say you can't have the inner wisdom unless there's some outer facts for it to work with. But that is purely mechanical. The das is all the things that you know that are not amenable to those, to the faculties and to logic. At least not that kind of logic. The things that you know intrinsically. As we tried to explain in great detail last week, Rabdesta says that the problem is that what we always, the classic problem in Western thought, again, not without going to what Eastern thinking is now at all, 
the classic problem in Western thought, the classic Western dilemma, is that we wish very much to grasp the inner knowledge. We wish, we wish very much. We are prodded by philosophical questions and problems, such as the nature of one's own existence, the nature of the present, the nature of morality, the nature of free choice, the fact that there is such a thing, all these fundamental issues that form the, 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 the ground level of, of spiritual knowledge, we very much need to know those things, but the problem is they're only amenable to inner knowledge. And the Western mode is to try to focus the outer eye on this inner area. And Abdesla says in the most beautiful and classic analogy, that just like a camera can take a picture, the outer eye is like a camera. And just like a camera can take a picture of anything in the world except the camera, you cannot use your outer wisdom, you cannot use the Mabata Chitzoni, you cannot use that. You can use it to take a picture of anything in the world except the self that is the point of origin of this wisdom. And if the Western mode of thought is that we keep trying to turn that camera inwards and it keeps breaking. Not even, not even one vague nut or... <laughs> <coughs> that's what it is so the das is that intrinsic primary knowledge it is far more primary than that which you know externally <coughs> that which you know externally by measurement in fact if you think about it carefully you'll see you don't really trust it it's only the things that you know with das that you really trust <coughs> the examples we gave last week were the knowledge of your existence you only know that you exist you only know that you exist because you know that you exist you know it in primary terms. You don't know that you exist because you have reference to points of contact between you and some outside system. If you do, you're in big trouble psychologically. If you, have to, if you have to figure out and reassure yourself that you exist because you keep taking measurements and you keep feeling yourself, or you're in big trouble. You're in big trouble. You have to know that you exist because you know it. That's primary. Only after you've done that can you start making measurements and can you trust your perception of an outer world. It's a very, it's a very awkward place to be for the Western mode of thinking, but it's absolutely essential. It's the beginning of all knowledge. And, and, and although, although we don't, we're not trained to do it and we don't like it perhaps in, in the Western mode of thinking, but if you just relax for a moment and think about yourself in a wholesome, natural way, you'll realize immediately that you know you exist because you know you exist. The Westerner does know that, but as soon as he realizes that, he gets very uncomfortable, then he starts trying to prove it. And as soon as, he tries, as soon as he tries to prove that he exists, he gets very, very confused because there are no formal proofs. There are no external wisdom proofs of the internal knowledge. And so he has a very deep philosophical problem. Of course, it doesn't affect his knowledge of his existence. It just affects his intellectual confusion about it. It's a very simple exercise. All you need to do is sit very quietly in a very, very quiet and still place and ask yourself, just commune, simply meditate upon your own existence, just, and ask yourself how you actually know that you are, and you'll realize immediately that you don't know it through any proof or external <coughs> reference. <coughs> Why is it more trustworthy? And the, the way it's put in the deeper sources is that if you know something with the external mind and it turns out to be false, it's simply deleted from the mind. If you know something with the internal knowledge and it turns out to be false, you cease to exist. Right? Because it's not something that you know, it's you. It's one with the knowledge. The knowledge and what it knows are one at that level. The, is this clear? The knowledge, yeah, the faculty and what it knows in the external world are completely separate things. The calculator is not the facts that it contains. The computer is completely separate from the process and what it does. But inner knowledge does that which by definition an animal does not have. 
and which by definition a machine does not have. That thing and what it knows are one thing. I mean, the easiest test of it, of course, is to examine the most basic thing that you know with the dice, which is the knowledge of your own existence. If that fact were deleted from the mind, then you would not exist. You wouldn't be there. It's like a student in the first year philosophy course at university. The professor told them that there's actually no proof that they exist. That you cannot really prove that they exist. So one student was extremely perturbed, extremely distressed. He spent all week in agony over this question. And he ran up at the beginning of the lecture the next week. He ran and said, Professor, you have to tell me, do I exist? So the professor said to him, who wishes to know? There's <laughs> <laughs> a professor with a yeshiva background. The point is that... Um, the point is that... Uh, that is the knowledge, and of course it's for that reason, as I tried to make clear, I hope I succeeded, it's for that reason that the word das in Hebrew does not primarily mean knowledge. It means intimacy between husband and wife. That's what it means. That's what it primarily means. The first use of that word in the Torah, which is always its primary meaning, <coughs> and I think we've discussed that before, is the bond between male and female. <coughs> the knowledge, <coughs> the kind of knowledge that the Torah uses as its primary use of the word and the two opposites bond into one. And the reason is because, or rather, the reason that the Torah also uses that word to mean the things that you know is because the things that you know with your dais are, in fact, the faculty of the knowledge itself. There is no distinction between the two. Is this a little clearer? Why is it more trustworthy? Let's try and take a, an angle we didn't look at last week. You know, we mentioned briefly that the dais is the, the way it's put in the Mishnah is im ein bina ein das im ein das ein binam ein bina ein das if you don't have das inner knowledge you cannot have factual technical external knowledge if you don't have external technical factual knowledge then you cannot have inner knowledge why can you not have factual external knowledge you don't have because it's meaningless again if you don't have let me try and give you an, uh, uh, last week we looked at the angle of this question that that is the next, perhaps a statement of the fact that whenever you have statements like if no A, no B, and if no B, no A, the necessary forced conclusion is that you can only get <coughs> any of them to the extent that you have the other, which means you can only get them together. Right? You have to develop external knowledge to the, to the extent that you have the wisdom to know what you, to know, what you know, to know what you learned. Where do you see them coming together? Let me try and give you an example. When you know something factually, can you see, now please, make my, make my night, make my week, can you see that when you know something externally, you don't only register it like a machine, you also grasp it. Can you see that? Can you see that there's a distinction between knowing something externally and actually grasping what it means? Let me give you, let me give you an example. A computer can't grasp anything. It can know it very, 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 it can know it, you know, it can be etched into its circuits. But it doesn't, there's no difference between that and grasping what it is. But you can. <coughs> For example, have you ever struggled with a problem? A mathematical problem, it could be a Gemara problem, a logical problem, it could be a broader type of problem. Let's say you struggle with this problem for hours one evening. And you go over it hour after hour after hour until finally you've got it so clear that you could say the, the string of elements in the argument forwards and backwards and sideways. You could absolutely say it in your sleep. You have it in clear, clear detail, but you do not understand what it means. You can't fault it. Every step... 
Have you ever had that experience? Ever? Nobody? <laughs> it, every step leads clearly to the next, and that is clear and irrefutable, but what it's actually saying and what it means, and finally you fall asleep in frustration. Right? You wake up the next morning, and as you wake up, you say, I've got it! I've got it! What's the difference between what you've got now and what you had last night? Only does. The Gaon says it happens when you sleep specifically. The Gaon of Vilnius says das happens when you sleep. This has deeper connections as well, but when you're sleeping, especially nighttime, especially the nighttime, especially after midnight, that's another whole discussion. The time of spiritual negativity is from noon until night, until midnight. From midnight on is a time of spiritual positivity. The special energy that's positive in the world. It's all... But at night, right, is the time when the... You see, in the deeper, according to the deeper understanding, the day is the time of outer wisdom. The, 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 uh, the, the creation of day is a thing in which things are clear. That in, things are clear. <coughs> in fact, the word, the word Arab in Hebrew, the word Arab, which means evening, one of, its, one of its meanings is mixture. It's where the light and darkness become entangled and mixed, and things become unclear. But the night, yeah, the way the Prophet puts it is that means your that faith, whatever, which also needs a fuller discussion, but faith, that kind of knowledge, emun is based on the da'as, that is, that, that is applicable in the night time. Right? Talk about chesed in the day, and emun at night. Night is a time when in pure night, in real night, you cannot see anything. You de- disconnect it. Again, we don't experience this because our nights are so artificial that we, don't, we have no difference between night and day. In our world, we like the night so that there's really no difference. We don't feel the difference between night and day. But in a natural world, if you've ever, have you ever been on a dark night somewhere very, very far away from civilization? Never happened to you on a moonless night? <coughs> you can't see in front of your nose at all? It's a very interesting experience. It can be a very terrifying experience, especially if you're unclear about who you are. It can be a terrifying experience. Because there, what happens is you become deafferented, you become disconnected from external po- points of reference. And when you're in complete and utter darkness, but I mean thick darkness, that you cannot, you're left alone only with your own knowledge of yourself. <coughs> That's the natural mode of night. We're afraid of it, we're terrified of it, we like the night, we, we're terrified of that experience. It is naturally a frightening experience. But the fear of that experience is because you are you're removed from your world of external reference, external knowledge. That's what a, re- that's what a genuine needs. And therefore that's the mode. And <coughs> one of the out- outcomes or one of the spin-offs or corollaries of this is that when you're sleeping, and particularly at night time, is when you can grasp things more deeply. The Rambam says an amazing thing. The Rambam says that the one who wants to be Zoycha, the one who wants to merit, Kisra Shal Torah, again, it's also a long discussion, but the Keser of Torah, it means the crown of Torah. In deeper terms, the crown of Torah is a metaphorical expression. According to the deeper wisdom, the crown of Torah means specifically that aspect of Torah knowledge which cannot be put into words. The source of Torah knowledge. We'll try and speak about it a little bit more deeply perhaps this evening. But Keser, the crown, is that dimension that begins all of the chain reaction or devolution of spiritual levels. It is that which is outside of the system. The crown is what makes the king a king, but it's not part of him. It, it what precedes him, it's outside of the system. <coughs> the one who wants to achieve that aspect of Torah, says the Rambam, should not waste one night. He has to learn Torah at night. Learning Torah in the day does not do this. It's learning Torah at night. 
The Ramah doesn't mean that we should switch the yeshiva seder, that we should all come and learn at night, sleeping in the day. It doesn't mean that. Ramah knew well that the te- the, for, for centuries it's been done that way, we, we learn during the day. But what he means is that it's at night time when you understand what you learn during the day. You learn the technicalities during the day, but in the mode called night is when you understand. It's the difference between knowing the thing and grasping that which you know. That cannot be put into words. Because you begin to explain to somebody what it means, your grasp of the thing. Can you begin to explain to somebody what it means, your knowledge of the thing technically? Of course you could. You can prove it in formula, you can write it down. You can speak about that to a machine. But could you share with somebody the fact that you actually grasp what you knew before? You can only share that with somebody who knows what you mean anyway already. In which case you don't have to say it. But try telling that to somebody who doesn't know what you mean. Or try and convey the fact that you grasp it to somebody struggling to grasp it. It's impossible, completely and utterly impossible. Perhaps another example which might illuminate... Are we, are we getting somewhere? Doubtful. Doubtful. <coughs> Perhaps another example which might make it a little simpler, I hope, a little clearer. Not only when you know something and then later grasp what it means, but... Any time you know anything meaningfully, you automatically at the same time are grasping it. Let me give you an example. Imagine you have to cross a very, very dangerous chasm, right? You're standing on a precipice of a cliff, and there's a gap to where you have to get to the opposite cliff. And between you is a drop of thousands of feet with jagged rocks at the bottom. They have to get across, important. All you have is a plank. You have a wooden plank. So what you do is, you pick up the plank, and you stretch it across the... Nothing. Now all you've got to do is walk across it and you'll be fine. The question in your mind is, is this thing strong enough to hold my weight? <coughs> Can you picture that situation? Is this strong enough to hold my weight? Well now, let's see. You are a highly qualified materials engineer. Okay? So what you do is this. You get out your measuring devices. You measure the thickness and the dimensions and the specific gravity and the whatever engineers do <laughs> of this plank. And you make a calculation that it will adequately carry your weight. And you run your calculation again, and you use your computer and your machine and your calculator, and there's a margin of error as well. Not only (coughs) will carry your weight, but carry your weight plus 10%, let's say. Whatever margin of error you need. No problem, right? You going to walk across it? You see, the external technical knowledge isn't good enough. You don't trust that. You know that intellectually, but if you grasped it, now, let's say what you did is, you took that plank, let's say you're a skeptical type, you're a nervous type. You're not an engineer, you've got no calculations, you know how to do those things. You take the plank, you, you take two rocks, you put the plank across the two rocks, you jump up and down on the plank a few times, it supports your weight, right? Would you now trust it more to walk across it? Much more. Why? The difference is, you didn't doubt the calculation the first time. This is your field. You're highly qualified. You knew technically that it would definitely do it. But there wasn't any dice there. There was only the external knowledge that registered it like a machine did. Is this, is this clear? And in fact, any time you know anything externally, you don't only know it, you also understand it. When you say that one, one and one equals two, there are two things happening. One that's happening is one plus one equals two like a machine does. By rod or by simple printout. But there's another thing that's happening in 101 is 2. You actually know and understand that it is. 
The difference, if you want to be, you know, extreme about it, is that if the printout were 1 and 1 equals 3, it would make no difference to a machine. It would make a big difference to you. Why? Because the machine prints out, whatever it prints out makes no difference. The difference element is in your knowledge of truth. Your grasp of truth. Is this a little clearer? Incidentally, how do you know you've married the right person? Those who have. You only know it this way. How do you know that there's a meaningful relationship between you? All these areas are living only in the dice. Now, let's try and take the discussion a little further this evening. Can we do that? Enthusiastic bunch. <laughs> Let's try and take it further. Yes, are you are you game? You have the energy? Yeah. It's not easy stuff. <coughs> But it's important, so let's try and let's struggle together and see if we can work it out. The dice has a point of origin. Okay? Let's try and study that for a little while together this evening. Dice has a structure. It has a structure. If you want to represent it graphically, it's a line. Again, you should not think it is this, of course. But in the, in the world of, of these ideas, it's, permitted, it's permissible to make pictures, provided that you realize that the pictures are purely as a way of getting a handle, right, the pictures, if you like, are the outer knowledge inviting you to gain the inner knowledge based on the picture. You can then discard the picture. In fact, you should be because it's dangerous. But it's allowed to make a picture just to get one into the, yes, into the area. The dice, if you made a picture, would be a line that runs through the human, that runs through you. It begins where your tefillin are worn, where a child's skull is open. In fact, it begins somewhere beyond there. But let's start, we have enough trouble, I, I can assure you, Discussing it from there on in. At that point of origin, where a man's trillion are worn, or where a child's skull is not yet closed when he's born, when he still has a connection with the higher world, it's a line that runs through the center of the body. And out. It runs through the tongue, for example, through the bris miller, <coughs> the two covenants in the body. That's a central line. It's the line that bonds the right and left halves. It's the line that bonds the male half with the female half of the, of the structure of, any, of anything that exists in the world that is called us the point of connection obviously it should, be, it should be obvious to you if you've been thinking along with me that the point of connection is also the point of separation where two things are meeting obviously is their sharpest distinction that's where they can melt into one but at the point where they juxtapose where they put together is the sharpest distinction Our sources say that men have a much stronger dice of separation, period. And women have a much stronger dice of chibur, of connection. Men are much more able to go to that point of connection and see the distinction. The male mode, let's not talk about men. There aren't any genuine men left. Very few, very few genuine women. But... The, the female mode is being able to go to that point of, of meeting and bond into oneness. Incidentally, this is why women do not drink Havdalah wine. When we make Havdalah, what is Havdalah? The point of distinction between Shabbos and the week. Right? Havdalah is the point of distinction. So that's a man's strength. The wine of Havdalah, very strong 
energy in the world that brings down that ability to separate. And women's strength is their ability to bond and lock into bond. So women don't drink the Abdullah one. This is the deep reason why our women do not study Talmud. Right? Women do not study Gemara. Gemara is the very, very deep training. One of the, mo- one of the mo- modes that is needed for Gemara is the ability to separate out into parts. <coughs> and it can be a danger to a grasp of holistic oneness. It can be. And since women have a strength and a beauty in the holistic grasp, the oneness, how the parts are really one, so in order not to weaken that faculty, they avoid learning Talmud. There's nothing to do with intelligence. There are a lot of women walking around a great deal more brainy than any man you'll ever meet. I assure you. Men probably don't believe it, but, but it's true. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It has to do with a deep inner mode. Some authorities say this is why women, in many instances in, hal- in halacha, are not allowed to be witnesses in court. There are other reasons as well. But one of the reasons is, a woman, we do not take a, a woman to be a witness in certain matters. In certain matters. Because one of the criteria that you need in a witness... You realize immediately it's nothing to do with intelligence. Can you see that? If it were intelligence, then we should apply an intelligence test to the prospective witness, whatever his gender or hers. But nothing to do with intelligence. But what you do need to be a witness is, is, is absolutely rigid objectivity. If you cannot separate yourself from what you witnessed, you're not going to be a good witness. Is this correct? I can tell you many times you see when a father brings a child into the hospital who's been injured, let's say. There's a father with a child who's injured. You know, he may be emotional, but when a mother brings in a child who's injured, right, she's intensely affected. You know why? Not because, she's, not because she can't take pain or suffering. She can take a great deal more than men can. I can it's obvious to anybody who knows. But because the difference is that she's one with the experience. She's reliving that pain. She's reliving that injury. She's living it now. She has the ability to be bonded with her experience and not to be separated from her experience. It's very hard to find the words for these things, but... It should be obvious. It's very useful to have a running criticism. It keeps me... Uh, <laughs> That's a bit of help. What's the point of origin of the dust? So it's a line that bonds right and left. It does many other things. It brings the higher wisdom into the lower world. But what's the point of origin of the dust? Let's try and focus at least on this for this evening. And let's try and learn something practical, perhaps as practical as one can get in these areas. Take home something useful, hopefully. The point of origin of the dust has a name. The name of that point is called Ratsoy. Ratson. Ratson means desire. You translate it best in English as desire, or perhaps will, or volition. But perhaps desire is the best the problem with the word desire is that there are two kinds of desire. There's a male desire and a female desire. There's a desire in the higher world and there's a desire in the world where at the opposite end of the scale, which is the desire to have and to, to hold and contain, they match each other, they're in harmony with each other, but we're talking this evening about the higher, the desire that forms the point of origin. It's in English we would call that will or volition. Why is it the point of origin? First, let's understand that, and we'll try and evolve the subject till we understand something about its application. Any action, any, any process or any action, must begin with a volition. Unless it's mechanical like a reflex. Are we talking here about human action, about, about things that have a depth? 
A mechanical system doesn't have a point of origin. Yes, it can be a feedback loop that just goes round and round. You have reflexes like that too, but that's not what makes you human. Animals have those things too. <coughs> what makes you uniquely human is that you can do an action that's not a reflex response to a stimulus. You can do an action that, that results only because you originated the desire to do that. There was a point of origin called Rotson that fired the thing into existence. And from there the process came down into the mechanical world and resulted. But the entire meaning of the process is only that point of origin. Can you see that? <coughs> Let's try and clarify. Let's make it simple. Take a simple... When I make a movement in the world, let's say I give something to you. A simple mechanical motion in the world. Physical objects moving through space. What is the reason, what, what causes that object to move? The, my muscles, the muscles are, are moving. What makes the muscles move? The nerves are bringing down impulses which cause the muscles to move. What makes the nerves operate? Somewhere in the brain, there are nuclei that fire, generate nerve impulses, and they cause the muscles to what caused those things in the brain to... Somewhere, there was a point where something discharged, I guess, right? Analyze that very carefully. What was there? There was one cell that triggered, discharged, and that started the whole cascade, the whole process, and eventually an object moved in the world. Now, here comes a critical question. What made that cell fire? What made that cell fire? You did an action. Somebody needed something, right? A very, very deep and critical moment in a relationship. And you were, you were caught in, locked in battle. Shall you, will you do it? Will you not do it? And then you made a decision, right? Or you spontaneously, you just, and you did it. What made that happen? Science can only explain the things that can be registered with the outer world. They, cannot, they can put electrodes into the whole system. They can see the muscles work, twitch. They can read what the nerves do. They can read the impulses in the brain. But the one thing they can never do is put an electrode into the gap that lies between the unrevealed higher world from where the spark flies, <laughs> what we call from the ayin, from the ain, from the nothing, into the something. They can register it from when it begins in the something. But the gap, yes, and the only way that you know that something flashed from the nothing to the something is because you felt it, you knew it. You know, of course, by the time you know it, it's too late. By the time you, you grasp it, it's already in. But there should be the residue of a flash, a spark of electricity, that's still with you from the excitement of the moment in which it flashed in. That gap, that flash, that spark that flies, that we call yeshmiyayin, something from nothing, that cannot be measured. It's got nothing to do with science. Science cannot do that. That's why they think you're a machine. That's why they think you're an animal. Because they put electrodes into an animal, and they put electrodes into a human, and they read out the same thing. When an animal moves a banana, yeah, when a gorilla moves a banana in space, in the trees, what happens on the oscilloscopes looks exactly the same as when you move something through space in a meaningful action or gesture in the world. So they say, if it looks the same in the scientific measured parameters, then you're the same as an animal. The reason they're wrong is, because they don't have an electrode that, they can, that you can put into that other thing. It has to be measured with an electrode of the dice. You know it, you know it. Not only do you know that it's there, you know that it's everything. The rest is just a mechanical revelation of what it was there the first moment. Is this, is this... When you give somebody something meaningful, and there's a tremendous deep response, is the response to the fact that the object moved? No. Is the response to the fact that your muscles twitched? Or that... Yeah, what kind of friend is this, that when you give them this object that really changes your relationship, what they're really focusing on is the muscles twitching, nerve impulses firing, they've got to be weird. 
<laughs> in fact, the natural mode is they don't think about those things. All they think about is the meaning of the action, which is the point of origin. The end of the action, what we call Saif Mas, is Machshavat Chilad, reveals to them what your original point of initiation was, that even though that can never be registered. Our objection to the scientific world is that they put these electrodes in and then they describe the system and then they claim that they're describing the whole system. They ignore the point of origin, which is the whole area that gives meaning to that whole, the only area that makes you different than an animal. They're completely ignored because they cannot measure it. And then they claim that they've examined the system. My Rebbe said once, it's like taking a dog and cutting his head off. And while the rest of the animal sort of twitches in his death throes, you start a scientific investigation of what a dog is. That's what they've done. They've cut the head off the system. We don't, not, that's not bad religion. That's bad science. That's the problem. That's not science. The correct scientific approach should be we don't have a method of measuring those things. So we'll have to deal, deal with it some other way. But to assume that it's not there because you can't measure it and then explain the system. The point of origin is everything. The rest is just a revelation of it. The rest is automatic. You can't stop it. Once you've made that decision, the impulse has moved. And the brain is operating and the nerves and the muscles. It's mechanical. It's involuntary. You can't stop it. A machine can do it. A machine can do it better. An animal can do it. Many animals can do it better. The only thing that makes a difference is that initial spark in which you... Yeah. Let's say you have a very special relationship with a certain lady. Yes, your wife. And things haven't been going so well the last day or two. So, from previous experience, you know exactly what to do. You spend a fortune on some very, very expensive and beautiful, immaculate and perfect red roses. Twelve, to, to be specific. You bring them home and you present the flowers. What happens? She melts. She melts, right? From then on, things are perfect. <laughs> Until you start misbehaving again. Why? Why? This lady is feeble minded. She's feeble minded. A few flowers make a difference. What's she going to do with the flowers? Eat them? <laughs> <laughs> but the whole point here is that this action is nothing other than a revelation of what was in the point of origin. That's everything. In fact, it's a woman's death that she's able to focus on that and understand that immediately. The action is nothing. The action is a revelation in the world that's done with the tools that are lowly. With the bodily tools, they can be the lowliest. But they reveal that in the point of origin, that, that, that's the value of the body. That's what you have a face for. That's what you have a mouth for. That's what you have a body for, and hands. So that your, your body can express in the world that which could not be expressed without it. <coughs> So far, so good. And the whole process begins there. The word Ratzon in Hebrew, incidentally, adds up to the same numerical value as the word Makor, which means a source. The word Makor in Hebrew is a source. And the word Ratzon adds up to the same. Actually, Shmuel Hashem's name adds up to the same value also, because that's the ultimate source of all the sources. But the word Ratzon, which means desire or volition, that is the same, has the same gematria, same numerical equivalent as Makor, which means a source. It is the source. Right? It is the source. Your desire, which then manifests through your actions, that is the source of the whole process. Let's look at another angle of this. 
element or issue of Ratsu. If it's the source, can you see that it must have no other source? If it's the source, it must be, then must not be preceded by anything. A source by definition is the place where something starts. If something else caused that, then this is not the source, that thing is. If this part of the mind is called Makor, then by definition it's not caused by anything else. That's where you start. If you're going to tell me that it's caused by something else, you want it because, then that's not the source. Then the because is the source. The mysterious and miraculous and mystical thing about this point is that it's no explanation. You cannot analyze it. You cannot ever find a reason for it. If you say, why did the person do that thing? If you ever explain to me a reason why he did it, then you're saying, yes, then the point of origin that the whole experience reveals is only that external thing. Real Rotsui is its own cause. That's where the buck stops. That's who you are. <coughs> Let me try and illustrate this a bit more, a bit more clearly. It should be a very short step from here to, to the next piece, which I'm sure your mind has already done, that the faculty of free will lives in the dais and lives specifically in the faculty of Rotson. When, you, when you're caught in a free will ordeal, right? Here we're learning something practical this evening. Up to now we learned theory. It's learning something practical. <coughs> when you're caught in a free will ordeal, you have to decide you're going to go this way and do the more refined and elevated thing, or you're going to go this way and do the more lowly and physical or sensual or lazy or earthy option. And you're caught in this ordeal. And you can be agonizing this ordeal. And you shake and sweat and you make an effort. And finally, you decide. And you take a step and you move in that direction. Now, the scientific Western mind will say, why did he decide to do that? Why? I want an explanation. The outer mind is seeking to understand. Then the Western answer will always be, because... His mother, when he was three years old, his mother said this, his father did that. These were all his cultural influences, his genetics, his biochemistry, etc. He saw all these movies, etc., etc. These were all his inputs. <coughs> After all those inputs acting on the substrate of who he is, right? so that's why he did this. If you say that, you deny free will. If you say that, you're denying free will. The person wasn't really free. They simply acted as the consequence of all the inputs. You don't know all the inputs. That's a technical problem. But if such a, such a vision, such a view would claim that if you knew all the inputs, you would know exactly what the person would choose. If you say that, all discussion ends. Because if there's no free will, if everything you ever do is simply the result, the response to all the inputs, it's the output of the, all the inputs, then people can't be held responsible. How can you hold someone responsible? All they did was the natural output of all the causes. The Torah doesn't begin... Responsibility does not begin. Justice does not begin. Morality does not begin. There's no human discussion. Everything is purely a mechanical system. Free will means that you make a decision for no other reason than that you chose it. The inputs are irrelevant. They are completely irrelevant. You're entirely responsible. One has to shout and scream about this idea. Because in Western thinking, they are moving closer and closer daily to a position in which they're beginning to teach that you do not have any free will and you are not responsible. That ends human existence. It ends, it ends society. They say that any time you're caught in an ordeal, you always go in the direction where the forces are stronger. Logical, right? 
But it's wrong. I don't want to go into free will fully now. Just one word to perhaps resolve a difficulty that you may be experiencing. And that is that the, the intelligent questioner is going to say, surely, but the inputs are important, aren't they? Surely if you're brought up in a certain way with tremendous influences, they must be important? Any sensible mind sees that they're very significant? How can you say they have no bearing on free will? So the answer is very clear, very, very clear. And again, we discussed free will once many months ago, and I'm happy to do it again sometime. <coughs> it's not our direct subject. But just to resolve this difficulty, let's say the following thing. Of course those things are relevant, but they have nothing to do with free will. All they do is determine where your free will will operate, what will be an ordeal for you. It's what we call in the, formal, in the formalized expression of this in Jewish thinking, we call it Nekuda Sabachira. The point of free will. All your inputs determine that that will be your ordeal. That's not your fault. That is external. But what you do in that ordeal, that's up to you. Not clear enough? Not clear enough? A friend of mine, yeah, I'll give you two examples. A friend of mine is a psychiatrist. Discussed a problem that he's having with me some time ago. The problem is he's dealing with a young Jewish girl. She's 21 years old. She has an intense compulsion to steal. She, she steals a, a petty, you know, she walks into the supermarket and she puts candy in her pocket, right? An inordinate pleasure from doing that and a tremendous compulsion, enormously difficult for her to resist that. <coughs> she has all the money she wants. This is a well-known psychological problem, right? She has all the money she wants. She can buy any amount of sweets. She has a wealthy background, privileged girl. She cannot... I won't say cannot resist, she has a tremendous drive and compulsion, right, for which she's receiving psychiatric help and therapy to do this thing. Well, the problem now is that she's in court for the tenth time. And the magistrate is asking my friend to testify about whether she's sane or not. If he testifies that she's sane, she's not what they call psychotic, which means detached from reality. She knows right from wrong. She's going to go to jail, which will probably kill her. How can you deny that she has a tremendous compulsion? A force motivating, militating, moving her in a direction that I don't have. The answer is, of course she does. Is it her fault? Maybe not. Is it by a chemical or genetic? Possibly. It's never been proved. It's doubt. But assume. It could be. Does it have anything to do with free will? Nothing at all. All it means is that all those factors make this her ordeal. She's, she has this problem. I don't. Right? i got my problems, I can assure you, but that's not one of them. When I get up to the next world, and Hashem says, Tats, what did you achieve in life? And I say, I never stole sweets in the supermarket. You think he's going to say, Shekayah, very good. <laughs> <laughs> I say that. They're not my problem. And the fact that it's not my problem is not my credit, it's not my fault. And it may not be her fault. The external influences cause the situation. No one denies that. But what you do in the situation, whether she puts her hand out and takes it or doesn't, that's where she's accountable. Is this clear? You can have so many external factors that are, that are genetic, biochemical, cultural, sociological, you name it. <coughs> what do they do? They affect the whole nature of what your ordeals are. They, they, they make what your deals are your ordeals, and they exclude others. That's what we call the Kudasa Bakhira. 
So you may be brought up with such disadvantages that your free choices are tremendously low. They're humiliating for somebody. But for you, though, that's where you're operating. What you do there is where you're free. Is this point abundantly clear? (coughs) So again, when you find yourself in a free will test, the making of the test may have nothing to do with you. Usually it does, by the way. Usually you shouldn't have been there in the first place. Usually you're accountable for the having experience and for failing in it. In fact, the Gemara says that if you shouldn't have been there and you succeed, you count it as a failure. You know that? If you shouldn't have been there in the first place and you fight like a tiger and win, but you shouldn't have been there, you call it a failure. The Gemara says that a man comes to a fork in the road. The one road takes him home. No problem, home. The other takes him past a river. In the river there are women. They're doing some washing, they're immodestly exposed. Man says to himself, well, we're talking about a man who's working on himself spiritually. (coughs) (laughs) He says to himself, if I take the road where there's no no test, what do I gain? I'm, I'm, I'm putting the world to grow spiritually, right? I'm putting the world to face tests and win. That's what the Messiah Shisham says. There are three, three reasons you created. One of them is Lamod Benisayon, to stand strong in ordeals. That's what you created for. So let me take the road where the women are, and I will not look. <laughs> Someone says, if he takes the road where the women are and does not look, he's called a Russian, evil man. He failed the test. Because the test wasn't whether you look or not. The test is which road will you take. And this character failed to identify the test. He failed to realize, even being tested, that's how bad his failure was. This man was looking not for, this man looking for, this man looking for drama. That's what he's looking for. There's no thou shalt be dramatic, it doesn't say that. <laughs> if you have poison at home, you put it on the table next to the wine, let's see if you remember to drink the wine, not the poison. <laughs> you throw it out, you burn it, yeah. Don't play with fire. Every morning we dive it. Every morning we say, Do not bring us to any tests. Are you in the world for tests? It's the only way you can grow. The only way you can grow is by overcoming yourself. We say to Hashem, do not give us any tests. Why? Because the tzaddik says to Hashem, keep the test and keep its reward. Don't let me do any damage in your world. That's what he does. But that's the way to pass the test. You're not avoiding the test. You're succeeding in the test. The correct approach to test is to avoid them. If you have two roads, and one of them is safe, the other road is a cobra poised to strike. You take the road with a snake and see if you can duck and dodge. And if you duck and dodge and you survive and you get there and you think you're a big deal, you're a fool. You're a fool. The immature mind wants to do battle with danger and overcome it. The mature mind takes the safe path. But you know what the real battle is? And this, this is where we get to the depth of Rotson. Uh, I don't know how much time we have this evening to talk about much more than this. But let's try and focus on this. is the most difficult area, the most important. Why? Please stay with me. Why is this? Why is the correct approach to a test to chicken out of the test? Because it's not chickening out. When you avoid the test, you've asserted the deepest level of your character. And you've asserted the most deep level of self- self-control imaginable. And in that way, you bond with something higher than you. Let's try and explain this. This is known as killing the ego, or it means self, complete self-annulment. When you take the road where the danger is, and battle and overcome it, 
even if you overcome it, you will have fallen victim to the worst problem that you can have, which is, I did it. When you say, I did it, what in English we call ego, right? what is conventionally called pride, but <coughs> what's the problem? The problem is that you've sharpened and carved out for yourself more strongly your independence from Him. And to the extent that you're independent from Him, you become unreal. The only reality in the world is Hashem. Only when you can annul yourself and become part of Him, do you become real. It's an ultimate paradox, of course. Because your ego says that you die. Again, the logic of it is, uh, I make my, the logic of it is that if the only reality is Him, the only way you can achieve real reality is by becoming Him. The only way you can become Him is by killing who you are and letting Him come in. Who is the greatest man who ever lived? Moshe Rabbeinu Moses. What does the Torah say about him? He was the most humble who ever lived. Why? Because the extent that you can empty yourself out of the vessel, so there's place for the reality to fill the vessel. To the extent that you fill the vessel, there's no place for anything else. The courage and the brute force and the energy and the power, the genuine power, is the power of overcoming the self and being prepared to admit that it's not me. In Musa, of course, I mean, there's so many applications. In Musa, which is direct work on the character, this is built by the quality of gratitude. Hakara Satoy. When you, when you say thank you correctly, you know, in English you can't express this, because in English thank you means thank you. In Hebrew, modeh means thank, and it means admit. What's the connection between thanking and admission? When I thank you for something you did for me, I admit that it was you and not me. The act of thanking means admitting. It's the same thing. <coughs> means we thank you. It exactly equivalently means we admit that it's you and not us. You have to admit. You have to kill yourself. Somebody is prepared to say thank you correctly. Prepared to acknowledge that I'm not the source. It was the one who gave it to me. Is training himself or herself to go beyond the self. And ultimately that person will find the ultimate source. Because instead of looking like a child does at himself as the cause and source and effect of all things, he sees one step beyond himself, that it begins there. But a person has learned to do that will follow it further. And eventually will arrive at the ultimate source and discover Hashem. But the first exercise is admitting that I'm not the big deal who's everything. It means conquering Rotson. Instead of, you have to get up there and say, I'm prepared to give that up. What was the original battle in the world? The original deal? The first human being who ever lived. Hashem said to him, don't eat the fruit of that tree. What was the nature of the test? Why was it a negative command? Why was it a negative command? Don't do that. In other words, just be passive. Do nothing. So Adam said, Adam said, do nothing? Be a passenger? That's what you created me for? You, you gave me cosmic power. The Gemara says he was so enormously powerful that Malachim, the angels tried to worship him. They couldn't tell the difference between him and Kibiyochim. <coughs> he couldn't tell the difference. He was incandescent with spiritual light. So he said, why did you create me if it was powerful? If all you wanted me to do is sit here and do nothing, why did you give me this cosmic power for? Hashem said, I know what you're thinking. Don't do it. So he said to himself, like, look, you, you put me here for a reason, right? The reason is to serve you. 
He had no Yetzirah. He had no twisted rationale. He was absolutely crystal clear. He spoke to Hashem face to face. And with his incredible clarity, he said, look, you put me here to serve you. That's my function. How can I serve you by doing nothing? Let me do the most difficult thing in the world. Hashem said, you'll die if you do that. He said, I'm prepared to die. That's what I want. I'm prepared to break everything and fight out of it. I want to die for you. I'm prepared to do anything. It's my one chance to serve you. And Hashem said, the service I want from you is doing nothing. Couldn't handle it. Because you know what he was being asked for? To kill his ego. To admit that he's nothing. He wanted to show. Yeah? He wanted to do it all. He wanted to get there. But the way he wanted to get there was, I want to get there. Me. And that's exactly where you're unreal. And Hashem said, I want you to become part of me. The only way you can become part of me is admit you're nothing and I'm everything. Then you're me. But there's nothing more difficult than that. You have to give yourself up. The paradox is when you give yourself up, you become Him. That's the biggest thing you could become. But to get there, you have to... And the child in you says, the immature part of you says, not going to do that. I'd rather be different from Him. I'd rather be nobody in reality, but feel like I'm everybody. He had to do it himself. He gave him all that power in order not to use it, to kill it, to give it back intact. That's what he wanted. What Hashem was saying to him was, you've got two roads in front of you. There's one with danger, which has great heroism. It'll involve thousands of years of death and torture and Jewish history. And who knows what abysmal holocausts await you. That, that's a, that, 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 the upside is, you will have done it yourself. The other road, you do nothing. You get home safely. That's what I want. Couldn't handle it. The paradox, this is especially a Western problem as well, of course, is assertion of the ego. It's not in this, in this generation much more potent. It's simply lack of knowledge, lack of awareness, apathy, pleasure-seeking, etc. We're not... Amount to the same thing, and they are connected, but it's a much lower battle. It's a much lower battle, but but that's the depth of the battle. The higher aspect of this battle is that only if you prepare to admit that it's not you, only if you prepare to sacrifice the place that's the highest place in your own personality, your own character, can you get higher. If all you ever do is express yourself. The best you could ever do is express yourself fully. That's marvelous. But you could never be more than what you are. The opportunity you have to grow is because he allows you to... Again, let's try and illustrate this graphically. Imagine you go up to the highest point of your own consciousness. In fact, this, this is what Phil is supposed to be, davening, prayer. Prayer is supposed to be working on Rotsi. Incidentally, that's the reason why our prayers are phrased as requests. Because we're working on desire, we're working on volition. And we have to discuss prayer in much more detail. We've done it once before. And you, you refer to that discussion. But in, in Tvila, the work is to get up, in, in, a, in, in davening, in prayer, the work is to get up to the center of who you are, the root of who you are, and then to give that up. The reason is because if you get up there and strengthen that, then you can never go higher. All you can never do is get in touch with who you are and express yourself fully. But you can never become more than what you are now. 
there'll always be a ceiling to your growth. The incredible gift of spiritual growth is that you can get up to the maximum level of who you are, and then you can go beyond what you are. It's like pulling yourself up by your own. But how do you do it? Because when you get to the top of who you are, you say, Hashem, I'm prepared to give this up. Then He gives you more. But only He can give you more. You can't give yourself more. You, can never, you can't take yourself by your hair and lift yourself up. Uh, is, this, is this clear? A simple analogy for this would be, see how difficult these words are? How many clumsy words you need to say things that are so simple? <coughs> a simple analogy would be concentration. Yes, can I offer you this analogy? When you concentrate on a problem, let's say you have a deep problem, you need to think of a solution to the problem. So you walk around concentrating deeply. The foolish, childish mind thinks that you're thinking of the answer. Not thinking of the answer, you don't have the answer. You wish you were thinking about the answer. You aren't, you don't know what the answer is. You know what you're doing? You're thinking about anything but the answer. If you, if you know how to think, you'll think about the problem. Are you with me? How does the answer come to you? Again, if, you, if you're not prepared to admit this, there's no hope for you. But it takes an admission. And that's why it's a thanks as well. How do you get an idea? How do you get the solution to a problem? You think and think and think and think, and suddenly, sooner or later, if you're lucky, you're blessed, and it's usually later, not sooner, and it's usually when you're not trying, like when you go to sleep, unexpectedly, it hits you. And then you've got the chutzpah to say, I worked it out. <laughs> you didn't work it out. You stopped trying. What happened was, do you know what concentration is? Concentration isn't thinking about the solution to your problem. Concentration is simply keeping all the noise out of the way long enough so that the answer can fall in. That's all. Concentration is just keeping the static out of the way. That's all. That's all you can do. That's all you can do. If you, the, the correct way to think about a problem that you need an inspiration for, right? The way you're going to solve the problem, how you're going to do something, resolve a human situation, put the facts together, whatever it is that you need your inspiration for. I'm not talking about a mechanical problem where you go through mechanical steps. I'm talking about a solution to a problem. The only way you can come up with a solution is keep the noise out of the way. Keep all the extraneous nonsense out of the way long enough. If you can open up a space, it will fall in. Do you know what an idea is in Yiddish? You know, Yiddish is a Jewish language, constructed by the Jewish people. In English, an idea is an idea. I don't know what it means. In Yiddish, an idea is an Einfall. It falls in. What could be clearer? Einfall falls in. What could be a cl more clear admission? Of exactly what it is. You can feel it if you know who you are. Character growth is clarifying and keeping the noise of your ego quiet long enough and admitting that you need more and admitting this is where you end, then it gives you more. Rav Simchabasaman used to say, um, I never forget he's saying this to us, he used to say that the world is full of light except where we cast the shadows. The problem is you're so busy trying to be the big deal that's shining the light. You keep getting in the way. That's a problem. Just get out of the way. The light's there. No problem with the light. You stand it, you stand there and shine the light so much. You have to make yourself transparent. That's what they say. The, the mystical source. You have to make yourself transparent. You know what it says about Sarah? We learn this from a woman. You know that it says by Sarah, Sarah <coughs> the wife of Avram. <coughs> Avram Avinu, right? It says one of her names was Yiska. 
One of her names was Yiska. In Hebrew, Yiska is a very interesting word. It means to see through. It doesn't mean to see, it means to see through. Sacha in Hebrew, that verb in Hebrew means to see through. And the Vedra says, Kia kol sachin everybody could see through her beauty. What does it mean to see through a woman's beauty? What does that mean? It means you looked at her, you, you looked at her, you saw Hashem. She had the kind of beauty that if you looked at it wrongly, would bring you down to the lowest level. But she was able to use that beauty in such a way, she projected herself in the world in such a way, that when you looked at her, you saw Hashem, she became transparent. She didn't avoid, again, this isn't, it wasn't done through ugliness, it was done through, through the beauty. That's what you call sneers. Sneers, that incredible aspect of a Jewish woman's greatness that we call sneers, which in, in, in very vague and fallen English terms we call modesty. It means covering oneself modestly and projecting oneself, not only covering oneself. There's some ladies who can wear a sack and look. <laughs> not talking, we're talking about deep modesty, right? It's not just the technicalities of sleeves and length of sleeves and so forth. We're talking about real sneers. Right? That means to project yourself as a woman in the world in such a way, yes, that the world t- is tempted. That means that this thing that you are is, could be seen in the lowliest of terms and you project it into the world in such a way that a person looks at you and they see spirituality. That's what sneers is. Yiska, they could see through her beauty, she became transparent. The word sakha, incidentally, is the same word as sukkah. Because a sukkah is transparent, you have to see through it. What it really means is not only visually you have to see through it, it means that you go out of your fortress into a place where you're flim- protected by the flimsy <coughs> to see through yes, the, 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 the material of the world and see where the source really... That's what sukkah means, you see through it. It doesn't mean, literally mean you see through, you don't have to literally see through. It means that through the sukkah you see Hashem. That was what Sarah's name was. We, you know, you shouldn't make a mistake and think that she was, she was modest because she was not attractive. We know that she was beautiful in the most physical way. Do you know how we know that? Because the Egyptians, right? The Egyptians were the ones who were keen. In fact, they were so driven by her beauty that Abraham was worried that they'd kill him to take her. And they, they were, when they saw her, they couldn't you know, to take her to their king. So we know that she was very beautiful in those terms, and the Egyptians were, were the most immoral of people. And she was able to take that sort of beauty and project it in the world in such a way. Sneers means that in the deepest sense, you go to the root of who you are, you make it transparent. So that, and that's the most difficult exercise. That's the most difficult exercise. The faculty of free will. It's the work of Tfilah. Tfilah is called Avodah Shebelev, the work of the heart. The work of the heart is to annul the root of the being. And when you annul the root of the being, then you can become bigger than you were before because you can be given something new. But it, it keep, as long as you keep blocking it, it can be no growth. Now, we talked about a lot of things this evening. It's getting late. Let's just add one possible <coughs> one detail perhaps one qualification and we'll have to leave it these things need a lot of thought and a lot of going over many times as introduction to the subject of Rotsen let's just add one detail and that is that annulling the self and annulling the ego 
does not mean becoming a nobody. It doesn't mean becoming a bland, parav, faceless, characterless <laughs> lump of a, a zombie. It doesn't mean that. Not at all. There are, there are systems in the world that, are, that project themselves in that fashion or the, the, the disciples of those systems, they talk that way. Judaism does not teach that. Our, our teaching is that incorrectly annulling the ego is a tremendously powerful assertion of the uniqueness of your character. The only part that we're talking about annulling here is the ego element, is the personal pride element, but, is this, but not the personal uniqueness. That, that should be flamingly alive. Let me, try and, let me try and make this plain. Again, Westerners sometimes have a misunderstanding. Westerners sometimes think of the annulling of the ego, sometimes that they've heard from Eastern sources. They think that it means becoming nobody. Completely emotionless, a completely existential numbness. That's not Torah. <coughs> if a person comes to his master and says, I want to be your slave. I'm nothing, I'm putty. I'm putty in your hands. I'm completely, I've killed all desire. I've killed all desire. Nothing means anything to me. Right? I'm your slave. That's not a slave. That's just someone who's going to get in the way. That's not a slave. That's just a nuisance. A slave is someone who comes to his master and says, I'm fired with ambition. I'm flamingly desiring to achieve. I desire tremendously to express all that I am, but I want to do it for you, not for me. That's a slave. <coughs> Killing the ego doesn't mean that things don't mean anything to you. Do you become a passive zombie and a robot? Torah teaches that you have to become a flamingly special individual. Nobody else can do your work. That your deepest desire, shell of your deepest desire, is to express yourself. Only the immaturity of who you want to do it for. That has to be kept. That's why you'll see that people of Torah greatness are people of uniquely strong expression, individual, personal expression. And it's tremendously powerful in terms of the motivations and emotions. And yet completely serene and completely prideless. Killing the ego doesn't mean becoming a nobody. It means becoming who you are. And that's the paradox. This, 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 this paradox is full of that. It's all the things that attach to the deep identity are paradoxical. Like Gemara says that the one who wishes to achieve honor, the only way to achieve honor is by fleeing from it. Only when you flee from honor will you be honored. So a man once came to the Chazanish and he said to him, Rabbi, I've been fleeing from honor all my life and it still hasn't found me. <laughs> the Chazanish said, yeah, because you're looking over your shoulder, that's a problem. <laughs> and if, you're looking, if you're running away from it, it so it should follow you, that's no more sure running after it than that. Running away means genuinely running away. Moshe Rabbeinu was the humblest man who ever lived. He became the greatest and most famous man who ever lived. And he knew that. And he knew that he was unique. He wasn't, he wasn't misled. He knew exactly who he was. But he was an Ebed Hashem. He did it for him, not for him. That's the difference. It's that tiny switch in the center. That's all. That's everything.
to the extent that you put your own vessel in, now the Gemara says that Rabbi Shirvan Khananya, I will finish with this, Shirvan Khananya was, was almost incredibly ugly. Was tremendously ugly. That was his uniqueness. <laughs> Moses says, his body was formed even. It says his mother wheeled his carriage when he was a baby into the base Medrash that his ears should be formed by the sound of Torah. And in fact, it was tremendously, it was tremendously ugly. And, and in fact, the praise of the Talmud that says about him is Ashra Yolodotoy. Happy is the mother who bore such a child. But he was the greatest sage of the Jewish people in his generation. Moshe ben Hanani was immense, immense in the age of the Mishnah. Once he met the daughter, once the Gemara says he met Caesar's daughter. So when she met him, she wasn't even ashamed to ask him. She said to him, she said, Eich, how could there be such chokhmah of eres, such incredible wisdom in such an ugly vessel? She knew that he was the greatest man of the Jew, you know, tremendous intellect and spirit, and the vessel was so broken. Right? She said, how could it be? It's a very deep story, by the way, I have to understand this. First, I have to understand it's a woman. It's a woman who's asking the question. Now, every detail in the Gemara is specific. Why was it a woman asking this question, and why was it the daughter of the Roman? Because Rome, again, this is the whole... Rome is a legacy of Greece. And the legacy of Gr- Gr- what Greece and Rome are in the world is the world of aesthetics. That's what Greece is. And the center of the concept of aesthetics is that a beautiful inner content should be expressed in a beautiful outer form. And that a woman, the Torah says that a woman is the, is the vessel of an aesthetic sense. A woman knows how to put things together in a way. She has a natural talent for that which is beautiful. Yeah. Long discussion. So this, this Roman woman, when she saw this contradiction between incredible inner beauty, inner depth, and incredible outer ugliness, she said to him, how could such incredible wisdom be contained in such an ugly outer vessel? <coughs> so Meshur Hanani said to her like this, why does your father keep his wine in? So she said, he keeps his wine in clay amphora, you know, the jugs that they kept the wine in. He said, to, but surely for a king, his wine should be in gold and silver vessels. So she said, you're right. She went home and she had all her father's wine put in gold and silver vessels. Now when you put alcohol into metal, it leaches out the metal and it goes sour, it goes off. You can't keep wine in metal vessels, it goes off. So when they served wine next at the Caesar's table, the Caesar was the emperor of, of it was the emperor at the time, was in charge of Israel that generation, the wine was off. So he said, who did this? So the daughter said, I, the Jew told me to do it. So he called him Meshur ben Hanani, and he said to him, what did you do? So he said to the Caesar, he said to him, I only said to her what she said to me. She said to me, how could such ugly, such incredible wisdom uh, content be held in such an ugly vessel? I tried to show her that when the vessel has its own importance, it spoils what's inside. I try to show it's only when the vessel is broken and has nothing that it genuinely contains. When the vessel is only a container, when it only contains, when all the vessel offers is its emptiness, then it can be full. But as soon as the vessel starts to put in its own content, then it spoils what's inside. She wasn't happy with that answer, incidentally. The Gemara says, says that she said to him, this is intelligent. The Gemara doesn't bring the questions of fools. She said to him, if that's true, how is it that your friends, she was referring to other Tanoim of the time, are so incredibly wise and so incredibly beautiful? Yeah. And Moses Rebeleza, for example, was so beautiful that there are no words to describe his beauty. And Moses Rebeleza was so beautiful, he was much, much later, much, much lower spiritually. He was only one of the Amoraim. 
Moses says, Rabbi Yochanan was so beautiful that when he once went to visit a, a friend, a, a colleague, who was sick and um, poverty-stricken, and the house was in darkness, and Moses says, he rolled up his sleeve and lit the house. In order to light the house, he rolled up his sleeve. He was literally luminescent with, with beauty. So Rabbi Eliezer, so you can imagine how... So she said to him, she said to him, if, if, you, if you're telling me you have to be ugly to be wise, how come there are Tanoim in this generation, great sages, <coughs> who are so beautiful and so wise? He said, I have a sunny, have a gemini tvei. Had they been ugly, they would have known more. <laughs> I mean, I mean, despite their beauty, they managed to achieve something. Yeah? Despite the disadvantage of beauty, they managed to achieve something. That's, uh, again, a long discussion about the nature of beauty and the battle between the inner and the outer, but the point is clear for our purposes, that is that the work that we have is to be filled with genuine content, not to become a nobody, to become a real somebody. To become a somebody so cosmically great that there are no words to describe that greatness. Don't remember becoming a nobody. We're talking about killing only the obstruction to greatness. That's all. We're talking about only killing that, that central, that, that immature, childish me. Right? But the rest of the character, the uniqueness and the ambition and the desire, the rotten, that should be fanned to a flame. The rotten has to be fully expressed. But it's vested interest. What we call the Nagir. The childish vested interest in it. That's what has to be killed. Now, we discussed this evening a, a very cursory beginning to the subject of, of Ratzon. It is the key to understanding the dice itself. It is the key to understanding free will. It's the key to understanding Tefillah. It's the key to understanding human functioning and motivation. It's the key to understanding the paradoxes of, of free will how it's possible to be attracted strongly and weakly and follow the weaker attraction. It can only be grasped with the dice. But the Ratzin, this absolute source, ultimate source, which can only be preceded or elevated by its own sacrifice, so that it can then make itself subservient to a higher source, can then reveal a higher source. That is the key to character building, it's the key to Jewish understanding, and it's the key to to all that Torah is.